Hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting Chagura members shiur. Thank you all for joining. I'm actually joining from uh, quarantine in Israel, where I'm doing the Chagim. Um, it's really strange to have a uh, Chagura lecture at night. And it really shows, for me at least, the international character of our initiative. We have people from all over the world um, coming together day at night uh, to learn together. And to me, that's really inspiring. Uh, so tonight we have the privilege and honor of hearing from McKenna Mezistrano. Uh, this is the first part of a two-part series exploring the Abarbanel's Perush on Sefer Yonah. Uh, this is really exciting, and uh, will God willing prepare us for when we read Yonah this uh, coming Yom Kippur? Uh, with that said, a little bit about our speaker. Uh, McKenna Mezistrano holds an MA in Biblical and Talmudic Interpretations from the Graduate Program for Women in Advanced Talmudic Studies at Yeshiva University. She's assistant director of the Sephardic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she writes about modern Ottoman Sephardic history, Latino literature, Judaic librarianship, and contemporary Sephardic culture. Her maternal grandparents are from Salonika, Greece. Now, that's pretty impressive. Uh, so as usual, if you have any questions, uh, please raise your hand or type it in the chat box. And depending on time, uh, these will be addressed. Uh, unfortunately, McKenna has to run right after. Uh, so if anyone has any further questions, uh, you can spam her on our Discord or are on our WhatsApp. So uh, the floor is yours, please. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Ohad. Yeah, as I think I said, it's like the middle of the day here. So once the class is over, I do have to go. Um, but I will pause for questions a couple times throughout the throughout the class. And yeah, please feel free to um, chat me, email me, whatever afterwards if you have any questions. Um, so can everybody see, can everybody see the slides? Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. Um, okay. So yeah, thank you so much for that introduction. Um, and thank you for having me here today to give this class. Um, as Ohad says, this is going to be a two-part series on Abravanel's commentary on Sefer Yonah. I call him Abravanel. I know some people call him Abarbanel. Um, that is actually just a huge matter of debate, like in the scholarship about Abravanel. Um, but you'll see in a minute why I prefer this other pronunciation. Um, so this is a very timely series because we're about three weeks away from Yom Kippur when we will read Sefer Yonah. Um, so I do hope that these sessions can add a deeper level of meaning and understanding to that part of the Yom Kippur service. So I have always been pretty interested in Abravanel or Don Yitzchak Abravanel, as he is commonly known, uh, because of a family connection. So as Ohad said, my maternal grandparents were from Salonika, Greece, and my grandfather, Jack Abravanel, um, was very proud of his name, his last name in Ladino, we call it his Alcunia, um, which tied him to the Abravanel family. And as a Holocaust survivor, my grandfather used to travel around the West Coast to various universities and also elementary schools to speak about his experience during the Holocaust. Um, and recently, I was actually going through some of his papers, and I found this quotation from a talk that he gave in Oregon. So he said, my roots in Salonika go back to the Spanish Inquisition. My forefather, Don Isaac Abravanel, was one of the leaders of the exodus of Jews from Spain. Imagine, an Abravanel lived in Salonika at the same time that Columbus was discovering America. So I love this quote um, because it's like very indicative of the way that I was raised, which is to be conscious of history and conscious of your personal past, which my grandfather certainly was. 
Um, and in fact, Abravanel's son, Shimuel, was in school in Salonika after the Spanish expulsion. Um, and much of Abravanel's extended family ended up there as well. He intended to go there. He never actually made it, unfortunately. He died in, um, in Italy. But that was his aim. But he never made it. But like I said, his extended family did. Um, so this Abravanel and Spanish connection was actually crucial to my grandfather's survival in the Holocaust, um, because due to Spain's neutrality and eventual support of some Axis activities, Jews in Salonika who held Spanish passports, like the one you see here, this is my grandfather's passport, um, they were not sent to Auschwitz, like the majority of Salonican Jews, but actually to Bergen-Belsen on the very last convoy that left for Salonika. So only about 500 of the 50,000 Jews in Salonika held these passports, held Spanish citizenship. Um, and of those 500, about 350 were sent to Bergen-Belsen. Um, and my impression is that almost all, if not all of them, survived. Um, and then the final thing I just want to show here on the right, this is actually my grandfather's birth certificate. Um, so it's issued by the Spanish consulate in Salonika, although it's written in French. And then on the right um, is actually their arrival card from when they were sent to Palestine um, after Bergen-Belsen. And you can see on there that they're called Sephardit in French and not just Juif. They're actually called Sephardim. Um, so again, evidencing their connection to Spain. So anyway, that is just a very quick, like, personal note about my interest in Abravanel's life and his commentary. Um, this class is not going to be focused so much on the biography of Don Yitzhak Abravanel. There is a lot of scholarship about that, and I will show some um, recommendations for further reading if you're interested in that at the end. But I really wanted this class to get into Abravanel in his own words and to deeply study a text in his perush that is like relevant and timely today. Um, so as I said, uh, this is two-part series, and true to the style of Abravanel, which I'll get to in a moment, I have organized each class around a core question. So the core question today is, how does Abravanel illustrate that Yonah is a Navi who is fit for his mission? Um, and so to, or to answer this question, we will primarily be looking at Abravanel's analysis of Perak Aleph. The question for the second class is going to be, why is Yonah so distraught when God ultimately preserves the people of Ninbeh? And how does God educate Yonah at the end of the Sefer? And to explore that second question, we're going to look at the final parak, um, especially the last few Pesukim with the Kikayon, this like kind of mysterious tree that appears and disappears. And these th that aspect of the Sefer is like notoriously opaque. So I felt like we couldn't have a class on Yonah without dealing with, you know, the final and the ending of the Sefer. And I chose these questions because I think they really get to the heart of Sefer Yonah. Um, now, of course, a caveat, over the course of these classes, we're not going to have time to read every single pasuk inside, nor every word of the Abravanel inside. So I really hope that these classes can actually just be a gateway to pique your interest in Abravanel on Sefer Yonah, um, so you can explore his commentary in more depth, if you if you want, between now and Yom Kippur. Um, I did want to give just a sense of the scope of how prolific Abravanel was. I think that it's important to kind of get that context as we're about to dive into just one of his works. Um, we're only obviously focusing on one work today, but um, he just has this immensely vast resume um, and a vast uh, array of writings of various topics um, and various themes that he covered. So this is just, oh, sorry, whoop. Oh my gosh. Okay, there. Okay, this is just a partial list. Um, 
And uh, these works were composed between uh, Lisbon, Castile, um, Venice, Naples, all over the world as Abravanel was essentially on the run for his entire life. Um, his Perush on Seferiona was composed um, in Monopoly in Italy. Um, it is interesting here. I think people definitely point out that there are two genres in Abravanel's resume that are notably missing. Um, so one of them is poetry or like Piutin. Um, it is interesting given his predecessors, like in the Iberian Peninsula, like Yehuda Halevi, Ibn Ezra, that Abravanel did not pursue um, the genre of Piutim. However, he did actually compose some very beautiful prosaic letters um, to his contemporaries, especially when he was living in Portugal. So there is a recent work on Abravanel that really treats those letters from like a literary perspective, which is very interesting. So I'll show that at the end. Um, and the other thing that's notably missing from here is a Talmudic commentary. So unfortunately, I couldn't find the quote where Abravanel says this, but I've definitely read this before. He actually says outright in one of his works that common, like commentary on the Talmud is really not going to be the focus of his life. Like he really wanted to devote his life to the study of Tanakh primarily. Um, so that is definitely, I think, what you can see here. And then, of course, also he was very, very deeply invested and interested um, in Harambam. And he dedicated a lot of effort to writing, especially on the Moran Nebuchadnezzar. So that's kind of just like a sense of the scope of how prolific Abravanel was. Um, so now as we're getting ready to actually get inside Abravanel, I did want to lay out a few key elements of his style of Parshanut. And we'll point some of these things out explicitly as we see them throughout the classes. But I think it's important to kind of have these signposts in mind before we really embark on a study of Abravanel. So if you're familiar with studying Abravanel, then this will be Hazara, this will be review. Um, but in any case, I think it's important to go over this. Probably the most unique feature of Abravanel's commentary is the setup. So reading Abravanel is really more like reading an essay um, instead of a line by line or like word by word commentary like Rashid. So Abravanel almost always begins with a series of questions and there can really be any number of them. So like right now, I think I'm studying like this Sidra Shemot that has something like over 20 questions right at the beginning. Um, and his commentary on the Pesach Haggadah has something like 60 questions. Um, here in Sefer Yonah, just on Perak Aleph alone, he has like six questions, um, but it can really be a wide range. And Abravanel sets up his perush like this because he's really considering the text as an entire narrative unit. So each pasuk is working together to weave a story together. And so the pasukim have to be considered as though one is building off the other. Um, you know, what is the greater story or like the larger thread that they're weaving before they can be dissected individually? These questions are then explored and answered within the subsequent inline commentary. So again, the commentary will not always be confined to like one pasuk. Like you could see a, com a commentary on pasuk bet that could really treat essentially the entire parak. Um, but it could be an answer to just one question. And we'll see that here today. Um, another important aspect of Abravanel is that he often prefers the Peshat explanation or understanding of the text. So in other words, the explanation that is the most textually evident and what is most robustly backed up by what is in the text. So what that means is that Abravanel will often depart from Midrashic explanations and he'll argue with his predecessors. So people like the Ramban, Nachmanides, um, Ibn Ezra, Rashi, um, whom he feels often will deviate from the Peshat. I will add, though, um, and I think this is very important, that 
especially when Abravanel is deviating from the Midrash, he will go to great lengths to explain his perceived deficiencies with the Midrash. He doesn't just like cite the Midrash and throw it out. He really engages and grapples with it before launching into his own explanation. Now, what we're going to see here today in Sefer Yonah is particularly interesting, I think, because in this case, Abravanel really harnesses Midrashim for his explanation of the Pesukim. So while he critiques them, he ends up like pulling back the Midrash that he had critiqued initially and using it to further his own argument. So I think that kind of like reversal, like that critique and then like that harnessing is very unique um, in this instance. So I'm, we're going to see that today. The last thing to know about Abravanel um, is he has super high expectations of his readers. So it is pretty essential to be familiar with the narrative sequence of a text in order to understand and appreciate the perush before just diving in, um, because the narrative is seamlessly woven throughout the commentary. Um, it's also great if a person who's going to read a Bravanel is familiar with rabbinic literature, other commentators, um, sometimes even references to Maimonidean philosophical principles. He actually even weaves in like non-Jewish philosophical ideas into his commentary. And sometimes he clues you in to whom he's referring and sometimes he doesn't. Um, so Abravanel's style really just like assumes a readership who is really well versed in the text of the Torah, especially, um, but also in, you know, like the layers of the Torah. So like the Midrashim and the commentaries that come afterwards. Um, so with that, I'm going to stop sharing these slides. And then Ohad, if you want, you can share the um, you can share the source sheet now and we will get into it. Does anyone have any questions like just before we start? We are going to um, we're going to go through like key Pesukim together. So if you're not like super familiar with the Sefer, that's totally okay. I think that we will we will cover the essentials together. But any questions before we jump in? Okay, awesome. All right. So uh, as I said, first question that we're really going to deal with, or the main question that we're going to deal with today is how does Abravanel illustrate that Yonah is a Navi who is fit for his mission? And I'm asking this question because of the way that I think Yonah comes across in the first three Pesukim, but I also want to hear what you think. So let's just read the first three Pesukim here. So Pasuk Aleph, this is source one. The word of God came to Yonah, son of Amitai, saying, Pasuk Bet, so God says to Yonah, get up, go to Ninveh, this great city or this large city, and call to it, for their evil has come before me. Okay, so a quick note here. Throughout the class, I might use a phrase, um, the keriah. So when I say the keriah, I'm referring here to God's instruction to Yonah to kra aleha, right, to call to the city. So the keriah just means the nevuah that Yonah was supposed to say to the people of Ninbeh. Okay, pasu gimel. So what does Yonah do in response to God's instruction? Shockingly, instead of just going to Ninbeh, Yonah actually runs what appears to be the opposite direction. Ninbeh probably would have been to the east, and it sounds like we don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but the common assumption is that it's just the opposite way. So he went the opposite direction. So Yonah 
goes down to Yafo, he finds a boat that's headed to Tarshish, he pays the fare, he gets on the boat to go with them to Tarshish. Again, we see this phrase, milifne Adonai, away from God. Then already, Pasuk Dalit, the storm begins, this famous storm that then essentially takes up the rest of Perak Aleph. So this is all we get about Yonah's plan to run away from his mission. So I would like to hear from a couple of people, just based on the first three Pesukim, what do you think of Yonah? Like, Let's try this first. Why is he running away? Do you have any idea? He doesn't want this involvement. He doesn't want to be beholden to God. Okay. And then, I mean, what do you think? In another country. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think his strategy is? So he's going to get away from God. Like, how is that going to work? Do you think that God is going to figure out where he is? He's not very clever. Okay. He seems like maybe not super sophisticated at this point, because as we know, like God knows everything. So wouldn't God figure out, okay, you know, just decided to go to Tarshish. It's not like God can't get to Tarshish. Has he ever had a prophecy before? If this is a question. Yeah. If this was the first time, it must have been a tremendous shock to him. What on earth is going on? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I mean, I think we all think Nebuah is like this great thing, but like who's to say that it's not like kind of terrifying, right? To get sort yes, of this exactly. divine direction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see a couple of things in the chat. So Simon says he's fearing the reaction from the Ninveh people. Okay. Simon, are you able to unmute yourself and elaborate on what you mean by that? Yeah. I think that. Uh, he knows what he's going to. He knows what he's going to face. People who are not God fearing means if God has decided to destroy the city, is that obviously they are not God fearing. So uh, one way or another, he knows that he's going to have to to explain something that they are normally not ready to listen. So that's the initial fear, and certainly he says, "Well, I'm going to my death." Uh, in, in short, I'm very. very they're not going to accept the prophecy and I'm going to die. Then we'll see afterwards that he changed his mind and he's he's also fearing for another reason. But the first, I think that the first reaction is fear going to his death, a a, a sure death. So it's almost like this is a dead end mission. Like God is sending me to do something that's just impossible. Yep. Okay. Um, okay, Abuka, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Please correct me. He feels maybe overwhelmed by the mission. Okay, so I think this is kind of similar to what Simon was saying. Um, okay, Rob, perhaps he thinks leaving Eretz Israel will mean that he will not receive further Nebuah, so to speak, and then he can escape God. Okay, Rob, you're like on the dot right here. So what Rob is doing is really important is I think, Rob, you're distinguishing between running away from God and cutting off the ability to receive Nebuah. That is exactly, that's a very important distinction to make. So we're going to see that in a minute. And then Aharon says self-doubt. So I think that's also kind of similar to what Simon and Ibuka are saying is that like, this just seems like a, like a dead end. It doesn't seem like it's going to work. Okay. These are all really great ideas. And I think this all kind of calls into question like, okay, well, I don't know if this person who doesn't think that this mission is going to work out or is so afraid, like, I don't know if that's who Yonah is. Like, why is he chosen? 
Um, and so this is really something that Abravanel seeks to clarify in order for the Sefer to even get off the ground. Because again, it's, it's Sefer Yonah, it's all about this one Navi. So it has to be justified um, for why you know, Yonah was chosen. So like I said, um, Abravanel has six questions on the first two parakim, or on the first parak really of the Sefer. Um, and we're only going to focus on two of Abravanel's questions and their answers to explore our core question. So I'm reading inside here, source number two. This is the first question of Abravanel that we're going to see together. Um, the questions are numbered according to like, you know, Abravanel's own order of the questions. That's not relevant for us. Um, so Hashela Hashinid, so for Abravanel, it's his second question. So that's exactly what we, like, exactly kind of what we said. Why did Yonah think that this would work? Like, why did he try to run away from God? So Abravanel quotes the Mechilta, which asks the same question. And the Mechilta reinforces its question by saying, look, we have these Pesukim from Tehillim and Zechariah, which essentially say that God is omnipotent. God is everywhere. God knows everything. So didn't Yonah know that? I mean, wouldn't a Navi know that he can't just go to a different city and get away from God? Why did he think that he would succeed in circumventing God's instructions? So now I'm just going to summarize a little bit um, so that we can continue moving through the material. But Abravanel does something here, which is also very typical to his style. And that is that he cites the answers put forth by the Mechilta, and then he immediately critiques them thereby opening the door for his own unique interpretation. And in source number two, I bolded the points at which Abravanel departs from Midrash. I'll point out those signposts. Um, but here is what the Michil Taz says in an attempt to answer this question of why did Yonah run away? So the first answer the Michil Taz says is that the Umot Ha'olam, the nations of the world, in this case, Ninveh, were close to doing Teshuvah. Okay, we don't know exactly what that means, but Essentially, Yonah did not want to further obligate or rather implicate B'nai Israel to do Teshuvah, so he ran away. So in other words, Yonah thought, okay, if I get Ninveh to do Teshuvah and B'nai Israel has not yet done Teshuvah, wouldn't that create this like damning parallel between B'nai Israel and this other nation? And Yonah didn't want to have anything to do with that. But Abravanel says, literally, this is a very weak reason. Because he says, Yonah could not have known what B'nai Israel's response would have been to Ninveh doing Teshuvah. Abravanel says, why assume the worst? Why assume that B'nai Israel would see that Ninveh did Teshuvah and they would just be like stagnant in their ways and continue to not do Teshuvah? Maybe B'nai Israel would see Ninveh acting this way, doing Teshuvah, and then they would follow suit and then God would forgive them. Like, why assume that the worst would occur? Second answer from the Midrash. So... This is, I think, something that someone was alluding to in the chat. So perhaps Yonah ran away because he was worried that if the people of Ninveh did Teshuvah, then God would forgive them. And then because they were spared from destruction, then the people of Ninveh would think that Yonah had lied. Because remember, the Kiryah that Yonah was supposed to say was, Ninveh is going to be destroyed. Okay, well, then if Ninveh is saved, then maybe the people would just think he was a liar. And Yonah did not want to be a Navi Sheker. Now, once again, Abravanel is totally not persuaded. Um, in this case, he says, Vigamze and Nenu Shaveli. Essentially, this doesn't add up. So 
In terms of why Bravenel isn't a fan of this answer, he really gives kind of like a multi-layered critique. First one is, let's say that Ninved did Teshuvah and they were spared. That should only reinforce their belief in Yonah. He was the one who told them to repent. So if they did what he said and then they all survived, that doesn't prove he's a liar. That proves that he's telling the truth. Okay, taken from another angle, let's say that the people of Ninved didn't believe Yonah. So let's say they decided not to do Teshuvah. Well, what would have happened? The Kiryas still would have come true because the city would have been destroyed. So Abravanel says, there's no man and no Ish on any side who would have thought that Yonah was a false prophet. Then Abravanel, I think, takes kind of a little bit of a dig at Yonah. And he says, also, what does Yonah care if Ninveh thought that he was a Navi Sheker? He would have said his Kiryah, he would have said his peace and then left. He wasn't part of Ninveh. He was going to go back to Eretz Yisrael. He never had to see these people again. So why does he care what these people thought of him? I think what Abravanel is getting at is that this level of like personal embarrassment that the that the answer from the Mechil Ta kind of implies is not enough in this situation to motivate somebody to like run away from a divine mission. That just doesn't seem to add up. Um, skipping now to the last bold line of source number two, this is Abravanel's perhaps like biggest critique on Yonah. He says, Kol sheken shehanavi ha'ober al hayav mita. So Abravanel says, ultimately what we really need to understand or what we really need to point out is that Yonah should not have run away because a navi who goes against his own words and is kovesh nevuato, which literally means like conquers his prophecy, but makes more sense to say who like shirks his prophecy, a Navi who does this should be punishable by death. So this is very serious, obviously. And of course, whatever answer Abravanel gives for the question of why Yonah, why, why did Yonah run away, has to be able to address how either he was essentially not Kovesh at Nebuato and therefore not Chayab Mita, or if he was, Abravanel has to really explain that Yonah did a complete Teshuvah. So we're not going to get into this too much today. I think Abravanel opts for the latter approach that Yonah did Teshuvah. He does go in to explain how in Perak Bet, Yonah's kind of odd tefillah really does constitute Teshuvah. Um, so you can look into that on your own if you're interested. But I think at this phase of just Abravanel's question, it's important to see like how severely he's framing this problem of Yonah running away. As a brief little aside, source number three, the Mishnah and Sanhedrin gives the source for being Kovesh Nebuato. Um, and on that Mishnah in source number four, which I, I mean, it's just a couple of words, but I'm going to read it. Rashi actually says, ha-kovesh shelo amra. So what does it mean to be kovesh It means you don't say your prophecy. And who does he give as the prime example? Yonah ben Amitai. So we know where Yonah stands in Rashi's eyes. I mean, again, this is a very serious issue to decide that you're not going to follow God's instruction to do a prophecy. Um, but ultimately, I think that the way that we can resolve this is that Yonah did Teshuvah. So, like I said, first question of Abravanel that we're going to need to summarize or that we're going to need to deal with is why did Yonah even try to run away? Why did he think this would work? All right, now let's move into the second question from Abravanel that we're going to look at today. So, back to the Pesukim, we're in source number five. We left off where Yonah got on the boat to Tarshish. Like we said earlier, immediately after this in Pasuk Dalit, the storm comes. And the sailors each cry out to their gods. They're terrified. They start throwing things off the ship, trying to lighten it up. And famously in Pasukhe, the line that Sepharadim say in the, um, in the Selichot, Yonah goes down into the belly of the ship and he decides to go to sleep. Pasuk Vav, 
what happens? The captain comes down, this is the line from Silly Code, excuse me. Why are you sleeping? Get up, call to your God. Maybe, now this word is very interesting. I'm just going to leave it untranslated for now. I know in the English it says the gods will be kind to us. But perhaps something will happen with the gods and we will not be destroyed. Okay, we're going to leave that for a second. Abravanel is going to address this directly because um, this is very strange language here in the Pasuk. So the captain goes down, tries to rouse Yonah. Pasuk zain, vayomru ish el re'ehu, lechu v'napila goralot, v'neda b'shel mi hazot lanu. Vayapilu goralot, vayipola goral al Yonah. So the sailors, again, this is just like a completely like panicked situation. They look at each other and they say, let's cast lots. And then we'll be able to figure out who did this to us, who caused this storm that we're stuck in right now. So they cast lots and the lot falls on Yonah. So at this point, you would think that if this is their strategy, they should know beyond a shadow of a doubt what's going on. Pasuchet, though, an interesting thing happens. Pasuchet says, So the sailors say to Yonah, Tell us who brought this evil upon us. I mean, don't they know? Like, this is such a strange question, right? Like, they just cast these lots. What was the point of that if they were going to ask this question? And then they ask Yonah, All of these interesting questions. What is your profession? Where did you come from? What is your land? And what nation are you from? Okay, we'll leave that for a second. And then Yonah gives this response in Pasuk Tet. So Yonah says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear God. Um, The God who created the sea and the land. Okay, can someone just tell me, I mean, what is your, what is just the burning question that you have on this response? Hebrew is very primal, and also Eloha Shamaim, not Eloha Haaretz. Okay. Does it answer the question, the three or four questions that he was asked? Not at all. I mean, what is, okay, if someone asks you, what's your profession? And you say, I fear God. I mean, I don't know, that gets, that gets us nowhere. Like, I don't know what Yonah is trying to do in giving this very cryptic response. Um. Okay, Shmuley says in the chat, he doesn't fear God. He's seemingly disobeying. Okay, so then how is this a response then? Shmuley, you can unmute if you want. Or not if you don't want. That's okay. I, I think he's trying to absolve himself of guilt because mm. he says he's a God-fearing uh, Hebrew and believes in the God who created the... Interestingly, he puts the sea before the land. It's interesting, since usually Eretz and Enmaim, I mean, Eretz and Enmaim, and he's done it the other way around. And also, he's absolving himself of guilt, because he says, I believe in God. This has happened from somewhere else. I didn't do it. Mm, Okay, so he's kind of, so he's almost yet again, like, getting out of the way, like shirking responsibility. Mm -hmm. Like, he tried to run away from God, and now he's kind of trying to run away from the sailors who are, like, pointing 
their fingers at him. Um, okay, Abuka says he tacitly admits there's nowhere to run. At that moment, he sees the folly in his flight. Okay, interesting. Yeah, he's finally actually, this is actually the opposite of what Margaret is saying. He realizes how stuck he really is. And then Simon says, whichever God they believed in, the sailors knew that there is no fleeing from God when you were on a mission. Interesting. Okay, so Simon is trying to get into kind of the philosophy, like what's going on in the sailors' heads and how is Yonah trying to address that? That's very good. And hold on to that thought because it's going to be very important for Abravanel. Okay, let's continue. So Tet was Yonah's very cryptic response. Um, Pasuk Yod. So suddenly, by your Uha Anashim, your Agadola, the sailors on the boat just seem to continue to freak out. Like that answer was not helpful at all. By Omru Elav, they say to Yonah, Mazot Asita, what did you do? Ki yad Uha Anashim, ki milifne Adonai Huboreach, ki higid lahem. This pasuk is also odd because if the pasuk is telling us that Yonah said what he did, then why are the sailors asking him, what did you do? Right? That, it, I don't know. It's just, it seems a little bit redundant. Pasuk yod aleph, vayomru elav, mana aselav, vayishtok hayam me'alenu, ki hayam holef besoer. So notice that it doesn't appear that Yonah even responded between pasuk yod and pasuk yod aleph. So the sailors go a different direction and they say, okay, fine. Practically, Yonah, what can we do to make the storm stop? And Pasuk Yodbet, Yonah says, Just throw me overboard, and that will make the storm stop. Because I know that all of this is my fault. I know that this storm is because of me. So Pasuk Yod Gimel, the sailors don't seem to do it right away. They start head, trying to head towards shore again, but they just can't get there. Pasuk Yod Dalit, they cry out to God. It's very important to notice here that there's a transition. The sailors had been crying out to Elohim before, and now it says, um, So they call out to God and they say, listen, we're about to do something bad. We're about to kill a man. Um, please forgive us um, because we, we understand we're in this divine situation. Tet Bav, they chuck Yonah overboard, and the storm stops. Tet Zion, it seems like the sailors have a complete change of heart. They make a sacrifice, they make some nedarim, some vows, and then the beginning of Pasuk Bet, or sorry, Perak Bet, um, God, Vayiman Adonai Dagadol, so this interesting word that comes up a couple of times in Sefer Yonah, Vayiman, like almost God summoned or like provided this large fish um, who swallowed Yonah, and Yonah remained in the fish's belly three days and three nights. Okay, so as we've already explored together, this scene with Yonah and the sailors is very, very strange. And Abravanel picks up on this right away, and he has several questions. Um, so he starts from the dialogue in Pasuklet. So I'm in um, source six now, the Abravanel. Um, and Abravanel says, the whole dialogue between Yonah and the sailors is challenging in a multitude of ways. Mihem, first issue. Okay, first problem. The sailors cast these lots. So why then did they go and ask Yonah who caused the storm? Shouldn't they have known, like, again, if they were going to cast the lots, they must have thought that the results were going to be effective. So why then did they have to go back to Yonah and ask him who was causing this disaster? Okay, 
שהדברים האלה, איך אפשר שיחייבו הסערה? The other question Abravanel has is all of these, all of this like interrogation that the sailors put on Yonah. So where did you come from? What is your profession, etc.? What would the answer to any of those questions reveal about what caused the storm? Like, why would that help them figure out why this was happening? As we discussed together, Yonah's answer doesn't seem to address any of these questions. This answer doesn't address the questions at all. Okay, as we already pointed out, Abravanel says, when the sailors ask Yonah later in Pasuk, in Pasuk Yod, Mazotasita, well, why are they asking that? The Pasuk already says that Yonah had told them that he ran away from God. So what new information could they possibly get in here? Finally, last question Abravanel has on this dialogue, Be'od, Ki lo heshiv lahem Yonah al ma she'amru mazot asita, v'hutzrechu ha-malachim lish'olo ma na'ase lecha v'yishto kayam me'alenu, u'bichlal she'kol ha-devarim ha'ela s'rechli nishot. Last question Abravanel has is that it doesn't even seem that Yonah answers the question of mazot asita, so they just have to resort by saying, what should we do? So all of this Abravanel says we need to explain. It's a very, very strange scene. Okay. So let's get some answers. We have a lot of questions. Let's get some clarity here. So I am going to, we're gonna skip source seven um, and source seven A, we're not gonna do deeply inside, but um, I do wanna speak briefly about the significance of Minveh before we dive into the answers to the questions. So it's very important to know that um, Abravanel maintains throughout his perush here that Minveh needed to be saved um, in order to fulfill a different nivuah, that Bnei Israel would be destroyed or at the very least kind of separated out um, via Ashur. So Sefer Yeshayahu, which I've put in source 7a, explains this prophecy that Ashur will be the ones to destroy or exile um, Bnei Israel. And early on in his perush on Sefer Yonah, Abravanel establishes that Ninveh is called the Ir Hagedola. Remember that from Pasuk Aleph because, or sorry, Pasuk Bet, Ninveh is called the Ir Gedola because it was the capital of Ashur. This analysis of why Ninveh is called Ir Gedola, this departs from other commentators. Some of them think, oh, it's because the people of Ninveh were at one point actually God-fearing. So Gedola like describes their greatness. Abravanel says, no, this just has to do with the fact that Ninveh was the capital of Ashur. So in source eight, in the bold, um, Abravanel says, Lachen nimshach be'inyan yonah, so that's just establishing the fact that Ninveh is the capital. Okay, so again, we have this Nebuah that Ashur is going to be like the agent of destruction, the agent of exile for Bnei Israel, and the capital of Ashur is Ninveh. Having that said, um, we can now move to source nine. So this is diving into Abravanel's answer of why Yonah thought he could run away and why he tried to run away. So source number nine. So when Abravanel says this, when Yonah understood the truth of this matter, meaning he understood this previous prophecy 
that Bnei Israel was going to be exiled by Ashur. So Yonah knew this. And so Yonah decided that he would not go to Nineveh because he did not want to be part of saving Ashur from destruction. Yonah thought, how could I, a member of B'nai Israel, have a hand in the destruction of my nation? It wasn't as though, you know, it wasn't like Yonah was going to go to Nineveh and then the next day Ashur was going to exile B'nai Israel. It wasn't that. It was just the fact that it was possible. It was just the fact that Yonah could have a part in that destruction of B'nai Israel and he did not want to participate. So in other words, Yonah had this very serious concern for the national safety and future of the nation of B'nai Israel, and he acted on that concern by running away. So now we might say, okay, well, what could be wrong with that? Like, I don't know, that sounds pretty good. So why is this such a big deal, right? Like, why is, you know, why, why are the Mepharshim often so critical of Yonah, especially Abravanel at the beginning? So let's go to source 10. Source 10 here, Abravanel brings another Midrash, um, and I'm just going to summarize a little bit here, where Chazal say that there were three people who had to balance between being what the Midrash calls Tovea Ha'av and Tovea Ha'ben. So in other words, there were three people who had to balance between like advocating for God's priorities, God being the Av, or advocating for B'nai Israel's priorities, B'nai Israel being the Ben. So we're not going to go into all the details. You can research this further using the citations that are provided in source 10. Um, the Midrash is clear, by the way, that it's possible to do both. It notes that Yirmiyahu was able to do this, to strike this balance between God's needs, the Av's needs, and B'nai Israel's needs. But let's focus on what it says about Yonah. So in the bold here, source 10. Yonah tava kevod haben velo tava kevod haav. Mano marbo vayhi devar Hashem el Yonah shenit lemor. Shenit nitaberlo, shelishit lo nitaberlo. So the Midrash says Yonah unfortunately was not able to strike this balance. He prioritized the needs of B'nai Israel. In other words, as we said, their long-term survival, right? He didn't want to have any part in their destruction by way of Ashur, he prioritized that over God's direction to Yonah to go to Ninveh and do his karia. The punishment, by the way, that this Midrash bears out is that when it says later on in the Sefer in Peret Gimel that the word of God came to Yonah a second time, that was actually the last time that Yonah received any Nebuah. After that, there was no third time. Nothing else came after that. This was it. God gave him one more chance. And then he said, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. Another way I think to frame this interesting like Av-Ben metaphor is that there are numerous facets to God's will. So in this instance, God revealed one aspect of his will to Yonah, which was this need to preserve Nineveh. On the other hand, Yonah was aware of another very important aspect of God's will, which he thought it seems took priority over everything else, which was the ultimate survival of B'nai Israel. And so Yonah chose to prioritize that aspect, the aspect of maintaining the nation of Israel, over his mission. Now, of course, he couldn't possibly know how all of these things work together, but this, this is the decision that he made at the time. 
So I'm skipping a little bit here, and I think this is very important to our core question. Um, so in skipping a little here in source, we're in source 10. Yes, source 10. So the Abravanel says, midrash, Amar Yonatan, lo so he says, Yonah only ran away in order to kill himself in the sea. Right? When he says in Pasuk Yodbet, um, throw me into the sea. And I think this is super critical that Abravanel includes this, what I'm about to say, he includes this in his perush. I think that Abravanel is specifically using this Midrash to call Yonah a Navi. Even though Yonah went about this in the wrong way, right? Even though he maybe had a misinterpretation of God's priorities, the, the multiple facets of God's will at play here, it is still a key characteristic of a Navi to be so deeply concerned with the national welfare of B'nai Israel to be willing to put your life on the line in order to preserve Am Yisrael. And that is exactly what Yonah did here. That is what I think the Midrash is really trying to bear out. And that, I think, is why Abravanel puts this Midrash here. So now we need to address a critical, critical question, which we've been asking all along, which is why did Yonah think this would work, right? We still have this element from Abravanel's initial question, right? The Pesukim from Tehillim and Zechariah that he quoted was essentially say, Maleha Aretz Kevodo, right? The God is everywhere. So why did Yonah think that this would work? Running, when I say this, I mean running away. So the key that we're about to see here is something that somebody said in our discussion, um, which is that Abravanel makes a distinction between running away from God's hashkacha versus attempting to cut off the ability to receive nebuah. So let's continue in source 11. This is exactly what somebody said. Yonah thought that the mechanism of Nebuah would not reach people outside of Israel. This is a very interesting phrase, by the way, mochenet la Nebuah. That's literally what it means. Like the mechanism of Nebuah would not reach people outside of Israel. So he thought, if I can go to an Eretz Temeah, right, somewhere outside of Eretz HaKodesh, I won't get any more prophecy. So if God really wants to save Nimbeh, he can do it by himself. But I don't want to have any part in that. To me, this distinction between God's hashkacha and the mechanism of Nebuah does add a layer of sophistication to Yonah's plan, because he at least had some conception of how Nebuah was going to operate, and he acted in a way that aligned with his understanding of God's system of Nebuah. Now, he may not have succeeded, right? I'm not saying, despite the fact that it was maybe more sophisticated, his thought process, that doesn't mean that it was correct. He didn't succeed. But I don't think he thought he was running away from God's providence entirely. And I think that Abravanel is really trying to showcase that here. Abravanel then does something kind of unusual. He recites the Mechilta that he criticized in his question. So I think I brought this up in the beginning when we were going over Abravanel's style. Here is where he 
takes a midrash that he critiqued and now harnesses it for his own interpretation. So let's see what he does. So the key here to understanding how Abravanel is reinterpreting the Midrash lies in the phrase Lechayevet Yisrael. In the context of Abravanel's question, Lechayevet Yisrael referred to, we said, creating this damning parallel between Bnei Yisrael and the Goyim, and in this case, Ninveh. Meaning, like we said, if Ninveh did Teshuvah and Bnei Yisrael did not do Teshuvah, then Bnei Yisrael would have looked bad. And Yonah didn't want to have a part in creating this, you know, kind of embarrassing parallel between the two. But as Abravanel pointed out, that interpretation of the Midrash doesn't, doesn't make any sense because Bnei Yisrael could still do Teshuvah. Like we said, why assume the worst? Now, though, that we've established that Yonah was aware of this prophecy that Ashur would be the ones to destroy Bnei Yisrael, this phrase, the Chayevet Yisrael, refers to something else. It refers to the destruction of Bnei Yisrael that Yonah does not want to be a part of. So again, we went from the Chayevet Yisrael, meaning a damning parallel between Bnei Yisrael and the Goyim, to the Chayevet Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael being destroyed. Yonah does not want to be a part of that. Abravanel then offers this very nice mashal, which we don't, we won't do inside, but it's essentially about an Eved who flees from his master, who is a Kohen. So in trying to escape, the Eved goes to a cemetery. So he thinks, okay, I'll go to the cemetery and the Kohen won't be able to get me there. And that's how he'll escape. But then the Kohen sends a Shaliach, who is not a Kohen, um, into the cemetery and he pulls the Eved back. And Abravanel says, that's exactly what God did to Yonah. Yonah ran away attempting to cut off his ability to receive Nebuah by leaving Eretz Israel, but God found a way because God will always find a way. In this case, the Shaliach was a storm, which literally pulled Yonah back to his mission. First, it pulled Yonah into the sea. He was swallowed by the fish and then spit back up onto dry land so that he could get back on course to go to Nebuah. So here, I think we understand a number of new things about Yonah. First of all, we now know that Yonah was attuned to this previous prophecy that Bnei Israel would be destroyed via Ashur at some point, or at the very least exiled. We also learned that Yonah was deeply invested and deeply concerned for the welfare of Bnei Israel as a nation, and therefore he was not only acting out of fear for himself. I think that what we see in the Abravanel is that he's really emphasizing that Yonah was acting out of this national concern in the hopes of preserving the longevity of Bnei Israel, And not just, as we saw earlier, personal embarrassment or, you know, maybe these illegitimate fears about being a Navi Sheker, nothing like that. The last thing we see is that Yonah had, did have a notion about how to receive Nebuah that he thought he could circumvent. He turned out to be wrong. But I think, you know, when we think about it, it's perhaps not totally out of the question for Yonah to think that God's ability to impart Nebuah would only work, so to speak, in Eretz Israel. Like, you know, we don't have Daniel yet or somebody like that for Yonah to reference. So perhaps it is legitimate for him to have thought that this would work. Final point here before we pause for questions on the mechanism of Nebuah. As we said, it's very important for Abravanel to ground his interpretations in the text in this case, he makes use of the commentary of Ibn Ezra, um, who says in the bold at the bottom of source 11, um, it says, Umatov hetiv harav Abraham ben Ezra ledayek b'ma shelo amar libroch mipene Hashem 
So even as Ra says, you have to be careful here. The Pasuk says Milifne Hashem and not Mi Hashem. And that's intentional. Because Lefisha Pene Hashem Nomar Al If the Pasuk had said Mi Hashem, that would have meant that Yonah was trying to do the impossible. That would have meant that Yonah was trying to flee from God's Hashkacha, and that would have never worked. And it uses the Pasuk and Tehillim that we saw earlier to prove this. But because the Pasuk says, we know that this is referring to the mechanism of Nebuah. And then it gives some examples from Melachim and also from Bereshit with Cain, actually, um, to illustrate how this phrase was used in the same manner there. So before we move on to answering our second question, does anybody have any questions or anything that they need to clarify before we go on? Yeah. Yes. Yes, the question is, how could Yona think that uh, by going out of Eretz Israel, he would escape the Nevoah? Because we saw he, he must know that yeah, he must know that indeed there, there, there are uh, there were Nevi'im that prophetized outside of Israel, Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, it's mentioned also Avraham, and even there were Nevi'im that were not, that were not Hebrews, that uh, prophesied like Bilam. So he must, he must have known about that. So how, what, what, what made you think that he could escape and he, and he would stop the, Nevi, the Nevoah? Yeah, so I see that somebody asked that in the chat, and I see, I think it was Ohad who wrote this. Could be all those were before we had the land, and I think that's probably what Abravanel is kind of trying to insert into Yonah's philosophy here, is that there's a difference between being outside of the of Eretz Israel before we, like, enter Eretz Israel, um, for, and then, you know, once we have entered Eretz Israel and that is our national home, I think Yonah thought that that conferred upon Nevi'im, like a certain, again, the certain mechanism, the certain ability to receive the Nevoah. Again, I hear, I think I hear your critique totally. And perhaps we could say that's a critique on Abrava. Now, maybe we could still say Yonah should have known that. But I do think that that's, I think that's the distinction there is there's a difference between having entered Eretz Israel and not. Um, any other questions before we move on? I'm looking in the chat also. Okay, more questions about this. Okay, Simon says something interesting before. We need to take into account that till today for sailors, having a dead passenger is considered bad luck. So they also needed to be sure that they would not make their case worse by throwing Yonah off board. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, any other questions before we continue? All right, going to, we're going to forge ahead. Okay, so now we can start to understand the dialogue between Yonah and the sailors. So I'm going to do some summarizing here so that we can get to the main point of what I want to discuss. Um, but know that Abravanel treats this dialogue at length. So I do feel a little bad glossing this slightly, but um, you know, we want to make sure we get to the get to the crux of the issue. So first thing that Abravanel says is that actually, initially, the sailors didn't even realize that they were in a situation that was outside the laws of nature. They didn't realize that something divine or miraculous was going on until they noticed, and here Abravanel brings a different Midrash to show this, and he does prove it with the text, but again, we can't get too deep into it right now. But the Midrash says the sailors looked around, 
and they noticed that it was only their boat that was stuck in a storm. Apparently there were other boats out at sea and they were all sailing along just fine. It was only their boat that was struggling. So this realization that the situation was divinely ordained is what prompted the sailors to cast the lots. Now in Pasuk Zayin, where they cast the Goralot, here Abravanel picks up on the plural of the word Goralot instead of Goral. So let's just read Pasuk Zayin again really quick. You don't need to scroll up. I'm just going to read it for us here. Vayomru isha re'ehu lechu v'napila goralot v'nedah v'shalmi hara'ah hazot lanu. Vayapil goralot v'yipoha goral alyona. So Abravanel says they didn't just cast one lot, they cast several. That's why it says vayapil goralot. And each time the ticket that they pulled fell on yona. Vayipoha hagoral alyona. This indicated to them that Yona was the problem, and it happened over and over and over again. Now, even though it would seem like the sailors should know at this point, like we keep saying, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Yona was the cause of their distress, they still ask him, why is this happening? And so Abravanel says the sailors wanted to just be absolutely sure. They were almost like suspending belief, thinking that perhaps the Goral landing each time on Yona was just a coincidence. Abravanel uses the phrase the, or the word mikret. It was just happenstance. So that's why they ask, why is this happening? They're like, we have to verify that this bizarre situation we're in with the storm and the, and the recasting of the lots over and over again, we have to verify that this is really all about this one person. So now we can get inside of Ravenel again and really understand the meaning of this back and forth. So he actually offers two readings of this dialogue. Um, I think both are very important in order to get to our core question. So let's go to source 12. So source 12 is Abravanel and Pasuk Chet. Um, so when they ask, Hagida na lanu ba'asher lemi hara'ah hazot lanu. So why is this happening to us? Rotzel Omar, Abravanel says, Bimahaya hachet, vehagida lanu gamken lemi chatata, shebesibato hara'ah hazot lanu. So when the sailors ask, why is this happening? Who did this to us? What they're really asking, Yonah, is what did you do? And not only what did you do, but what sin did you commit that would make you worthy of being in this situation? Who did? You, what did you do and who did you wrong? That's key as well. Who, who did you do it to that would explain the storm? So skipping now to the next bold section in source 12. So when they ask him all these questions, what's your profession? Where did you come from, etc.? So when the sailors then ask, what is your profession? What they're really asking again in this framework of like, what sin did you commit is maybe you now your profession is like inherently sinful. This is kind of a funny example, I think, but they, what Abravanel says is maybe you're like a Kohen to Avodah Zarah. So maybe you should be Chayav Mitah because you, you know, sinned against your God somehow. And similarly, when they ask Yonah, where are you coming from? This really means like, maybe you come from evil parents. Maybe your parents were sinful. And so now God is punishing you um, on account of what your parents did. And there are even more potential questions included in like this framework of where are you coming from to kind of get at like, again, these two aspects of who did you sin against and what was the sin? So if you had to like 
explain this philosophy, I guess, in like one sentence or even like three words, what would you say the sailors, what, what was their philosophy about like what was potentially happening to them? There's like a, a quick phrase that we can use to sum this up. Does anyone have an idea? Sorry. I just didn't hear. Okay, divine intervention. Interesting. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, I think we can say this is reward and punishment. Cautious and empathetic. Interesting. Okay. I was going to say this is reward and punishment or Sakhar Vaonesh, right? This is if you do something wrong, and especially if you do something wrong to another person, you're going to be punished, right? You're not, if you, if you did some sin against somebody, we don't know what it is, but we're going to figure it out. If you did this sin against somebody, that's why we're in this dangerous situation now, because you're being punished. Now, given that that was the concept, the sailor's conception of the situation, that if you wrong somebody or you, you know, you have some sinful career that you're doomed, right? Yonah addressed this directly in his response to them. So let's go to source 13. Okay, so Abravanel says, now that we know that all of their questions, all the sailors' questions revolve around the nature of the sin and against whom Yonah had sinned, that's why Yonah responds in this cryptic way of, I am a Hebrew and I fear God. What does this actually mean? Okay, Yonah says, you're trying to figure out what I did, what I did that was so wrong to make me worthy of this punishment of being in this storm with you. This is just like so funny to me. Abravanel is playing with the words. When Yonah says, he doesn't actually only mean I'm a Hebrew. He means I'm a sinner. I'm an Avaryan. And what did I do? He used another pasuk to, to describe this, the nature of the word over. And so Yonah says, why am I a sinner? Why am I an Avaryan? Because I defaulted on a commandment directly from God. So then Yonah goes on to further explain the, um, the nature of his sin. Yonah says, sailors, you've got, you've, you're missing a piece here. You're asking me about my land and my nation. You're asking me about people who I might have sinned against. But that's not what I did. I didn't sin against an individual. I did, I did something worse. I sinned against God and God alone. And that's why, I'm try, that's why God is trying to destroy me. I transgressed against a direction from God. So 
So this is just, I think this is so fascinating how Abravanel is untangling Yonah's answer. So he says, I'm an Avaryan and I didn't sin against people like your questions implied, but I sinned against God. And now because I sinned against God, you're right, sailors, there is this concept of reward and punishment and God punishes. But when God punishes, he can break the laws of nature. That's why we're in this crazy situation right now. That's why Abravanel says, God is in control of everything. And God can break the laws of nature in order to exact his Sakhar Ba'onesh. So I think that what Abravanel is pointing out here, and we're going to see how he does it again in the second read, is that the sailors do have some conception of reward and punishment, but they're stuck on the fact that essentially you can only wrong people so that's why they keep asking who, who, who did you do this to? Who did you do this to? And Yonah is saying, you're missing something in your formulation. It is possible to wrong others, of course, but you can also run, you can also wrong God. And that's what I did. So that's the first way to read the conversation. We're going to run through the second way, and then we're going to summarize and be done. So source 14. This is a totally different starting point for the sailor's philosophy. This starting point is Yonah. Maybe there's just some divine gizera against you and you were destined to be in this situation. So in order for the sailors to further understand this, they asked Yonah, Okay, so here it's important. Abravanel is saying with this framework of the sailors, this alternative read that Yonah was just destined to be in this situation. You can essentially take all of their, all of the sailors' questions and boil them down to two issues. Question number one, I'm continuing now in Abravanel. It's not actually in this case about like some specific career that you have, or even like a specific one specific action that you did. Again, it's not like, oh, I punched my friend in the face. And because of that one specific action, now I'm being punished. It's just, maybe you are just have these general activities that once again, destined you, Yona, for this outcome. The second question that the sailors are asking of like, you get trying to get at Yonah's origin story. Where did you come from? In, again, in this framework of destiny, all it really means is maybe because you're from this one place, you're destined for doom, right? You were born in Eretz Israel, and that's it. Like you're destined to die. You had no control over your destiny. We're just in this situation because we're all liable to fate. Um, so then, like, like I already said, Abravanel says, therefore, the questions can really be summed up to two questions. Just what are your general activities? And then what's your origin story? And both of those could just explain your destiny right now. 
So this second read um, by Abravanel suggests that this is a little bit more, I think, of like a, a primitive framework um, by the sailors, which was that Yona was just liable to fate. Um, but yet again, in this alternative reading, Abravanel casts Yona as being able to perceive the sailor's framework and directly respond to it. So in this case, how do we read Yona's answer? Abravanel says, Okay, no play on words here. Here, Ivrianochi just means literally, I am a Hebrew. So when Yonah says Ivrianochi, he's trying to say, sailors, you think that this situation is all because of destiny, that maybe I was just born in the wrong place at the wrong time. That's not what's going on. You know that the land of Israel is a good land. And not only that, you know, I guess they knew this, you know that there are other sailors who, or there are other people who come from Eretz Israel on a voyage on the sea and nothing happens to them. They're completely fine. So that can't be an explanation for why, um, for why I'm just in this destined situation right now. It would have had to apply to everybody from Eretz Israel, and it doesn't. I think there's a typo in there. It should just be low with a lamet or with a vav. So when Yonah says then, I fear God, what he means here is, I don't fear God who just operates on fate who just operates on, you know, randomness. Again, you could just be born in the wrong place in the wrong time. I fear God who operates with hashkacha and who punishes people who sin against him. And that's the situation that we're in now. So finally here, Yonah concludes, God is now extending this hashkacha. God is now punishing me because of the actions that I did. Meaning, Yonah, when he says, I, he has to tell the sailors that he ran away from God because otherwise they would just think that this entire thing was random. And Yonah is saying, that's not how it works. There's a system of reward and punishment and I transgressed. And now that's why we're in this situation. In both of these cases, I think it's key. I think like, you know, we could ask, like, why does Abravanel have to go through and like, expand this dialogue so much and like get into the mindset of the sailors and their philosophy and untangle it like what's the point I think the point is really in how Yonah addresses it I think what Abravanel is trying to show is that Yonah is an educator he can perceive where people are at he can perceive their philosophy and he can respond to it directly and correct it if there's a deficiency and that is a key characteristic of a Navi you cannot have it you can't I mean that's just like I mean that's like the best characteristic in a Navi, to be able to meet people where they're at and respond. Okay, we are going to wrap up here in a couple of minutes. I'm going to just share my screen one more time so that we can see the summary of our questions. Okay. All right. So our core question today was, um, why was Yonah chosen, right? And how do we know that he's fit for his mission? Can everybody see this or no? 
No, can't see it. Okay, one second. Can we see it now? Yes? Okay, great. So our core question was, why was Yonah fit for his mission, right? At the beginning, he appears kind of unsophisticated, afraid. We wonder why this person was chosen. We see now from the commentary of Abravanel that there are two key characteristics to Yonah that, make, that made him this ideal choice for a Navi. Number one, he was motivated to ensure the protection and survival of B'nai Israel. He was nationally motivated and not individually motivated. Although he made some missteps here, I think that that distinction is very important to make. The second thing that we learned is that Yonah is an educator, right? This is why we went through this dialogue with Yonah and the sailors. And not only is he an educator, but like we said, he's capable of addressing people at different phases of their philosophical conception of God and correcting any fundamental misconceptions that they have. What better person to send to, to a city where the people need to be turned around than someone with that kind of educational capability? There's nobody better. How does Abravanel illustrate this? What, do, what does he do? He really relies in this case a lot on Midrashic interpretation. We saw multiple instances of Abravanel harnessing the Midrash for his interpretation of the Pesukim. And as we already noted, he carefully expands the dialogue. Um, in the Sefer, which on first read is very confusing. I think Abravanel really helps to untangle um, and make sense of it. So I want to end there because um, we've gone now for, I think, about an hour. So I just want to thank everyone so much for this opportunity. Um, I really, I love studying Abravanel. I do think that there's some aspect of like, once you start learning a Sefer according to Abravanel, it's like you drink the Kool-Aid. Like it's a little hard sometimes, I think, to see it any other way. So I definitely um, welcome any like critiques of Abravanel that are obvious to you that might not be obvious to me. Um, but anyway, I think that this is such a great way to like crack open the Sefer and really get into not only the mindset of the characters in the Sefer, but also into the mindset of Abravanel. So thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Wow. Thank you so much. That was really insightful. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time for questions. So as uh, stated before, you can send uh, all questions or comments on the WhatsApp or on our Discord chat. And uh, stay tuned for part two. Very exciting. And uh, stay tuned for all the other wonderful shirim that uh, we're going to have. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you.